Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bygrave. That's me. My guest on this week's episode is Michael Bichetta. He's a Melbourne-based hospitality pro who is the co-owner of The Influential and very cool Fitzroy wine bar, Bar Liberty. They've also got the Italian-inspired Capitano in Carlton and Falco Bakery in Collingwood. Michael also has Worksmith, which is a co-working space for hospitality types. And we talk about how that has evolved, how they very nearly lost it during the pandemic and why it's a break-even proposition. Michael is also behind Melbourne Cocktail Festival, which kicks off next week on Monday, April the 4th. You can get tickets to that at melbournecocktailfestival.io. It's an interesting chat. Michael has gone from working for free at Melbourne free-hatted restaurant Attica to taking on their bar program before he left and opened Bar Liberty. He's done a lot of interesting things in the six years since then and learned a lot along the way. It's a chat with a lot in there for anyone wanting to build a sustainable business and career in and around drinks. Speaking of building sustainable businesses, that's what I'm working on here at Boothby, and the podcast is one piece of that puzzle. If you can leave a review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice, that would help me to get this podcast out to the people who want to hear it. Okay, let's get into my chat with Michael Bichetta. Michael Bichetta, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work by Boothby. How are you doing today? I'm good, Sam. Thanks for having me. I imagine you're pretty busy with Melbourne Cocktail Festival coming up on the 4th of April. Before we get to that, I want to talk through that, but I also want to talk through a bit about some of the other things that you do because you kind of got your fingers in a few different pies uh, mm-hmm. in, in and around the hospitality industry. Can you tell me a little bit about how, uh, how you came to be an owner in uh, Bar Liberty in Melbourne? Yeah, absolutely. So I my early, early career in hospitality was certainly focused around beverage. I grew up near the Yarra Valley and spent a lot of time in wineries and breweries and and those sort of places before spending a bit of time overseas in restaurants and then coming back home and and really looking at, I guess, the next few steps of my career and where I wanted to to learn from, from great people. And I was right at the sort of start of Attica's rise in restaurants in Melbourne and saw what um, the beverage team was doing there with Banjo at the helm and basically knocked on the door one day and asked to work for free uh, a day, day a week, two days a week uh, while I was doing a full-time job in the Yarra Valley. And off the back of that, for sort of doing that for three, four months, uh, managed to weasel my way in the side door and um, uh, get a casual position. And then that grew into a full-time position, which grew into the beverage team and then into management. And I was there for sort of three and a half years after mm. leaving there and really falling in love with, with drinks. So main focus on wine, but then I took over the bar program there, which was really interesting because there was no bartender. It was a 60 pack three hat restaurant. Um, sure. And as a section waiter or section sommelier, you basically had to do your own drinks uh, in the bar, which <laughs> when you're trying to deliver three hat service and then having to do, the bar as well was interesting. That's um, very funny, difficult. yeah. Given the focus of Attica being so focused on Australian um, food and, and produce and had a big garden close by, yeah. um, went through the process of eradicating all sort of international spirits and having first balls all Australian, all of our cocktails are all Australian and using all the amazing ingredients that the, the basically the chefs were using and all the great yeah. equipment they had and creating you know a cocktail list that could be you know mainly batched um, so it could be delivered in service pretty quickly when you're in the weeds. Um, There's nothing, nothing wrong with batch service, you know, if it gets absolutely out there. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. It was very, it was self-fulfilling in a way because it's helped me out so much in service. Um, and I guess, yeah, off the back of, of leaving Attica, it was the time, a timing piece kind of 
fell into to, to place where Banjo and I left within a month of each other. And my business partners, Manu and Casey, who owned Rockwell and Sons at the time in Collingwood, um, had sort of stumbled across a space around the corner from them. And I'd gone there a few times with Manu to check it out without any intention of joining the team. And yeah, the mm. timing piece worked out well that I ended up leaving Attica. And I was like, well, I'd love to open a, a wine-focused venue. It was kind of, you know, apart from the mainstays, that have been around sort of 20 plus years, like the Geralds of the world in, in Melbourne, there wasn't anything really new happening in the wine bar scene. Bar Liberty seemed to have a sort of different kind of attitude when it opened, right? Yeah, we wanted to basically strip back what, you know, this, I guess, not that, not that Attica is stuffy service, but it is three hat level service. So yeah, it's, it's refined uh, and we wore suits to, to work um, and we want to strip <laughs> that right back. Obviously, Was that the that- last time you wore a suit to work? Uh, absolutely yeah <laughs> seven years ago six years ago um i actually tried one on the other day and it does not fit anymore <laughs> um yeah and we want to strip that right back we wanted to play music that we wanted to listen to we wanted to serve food that we would we you know we love to eat but a lot of it wouldn't be misplaced on fine dining menus and yep. have a wine list that was very reflective of our experience and i guess through banjo his experience in wine and I guess across the beverage list, it was from day dot, Banjo and I worked really closely together on it where every component of the list had to stack up to the level of the wine because we right. hated dying out at some wine bars where they had really horrible beers or you yeah. go to a cocktail bar and the wine, the few wines that they have were horrible. And that's certainly changed in, that, in the last six years, definitely, yeah. um, in sort of the top, sort of higher-end places or medium to higher places, which is awesome to see. But at the mm. time, no one was kind of really making sure that every single component of their list was awesome. Even if you are a wine-focused venue, why do you not have awesome yeah. cocktails? Yeah. So that was our focus with opening it. And it's, you know, early days, I'm not going to say, it was, it was a runaway success with the right people, with industry, certainly. Loved yeah. it. You know, we got to the point where, like, the industry afternoon was sort of Sunday afternoons. It was super busy. It was a really good vibe. You know, tables, sharing bottles and all that sort of, that feeling yeah. in the venue. It was awesome. But then... You know, in winter, we struggled on a Saturday night quite a lot right. um, when we first opened and just getting that sort of public perception of what we are and what we did. We got a lot of influx of people off the back of us being, you know, ex-Attica, which is yep. awesome. But then some of them kind of expected different things and it's a very low-key venue. You know, the, the sign is spray-painted and still yep. remains that way to this day. It was certainly not meant to be that. It was a placeholder. and then everyone, Oh, was it? Yeah, absolutely. We just spray painted it because we had the old sign up while we were building. Sure. And we have one designed sitting there still. We never have never printed it because everyone's like, you have to keep it now. You gotta, yeah, you got to keep it. The first few one. months. Did you find that the having the trade-in helped you with getting the word out to the wider public? Yeah, it was definitely a slightly slower burn, but it meant that we cultivated a really great community around us so like black pearl within you know four minute walking distance was awesome and my business partners co-own above board as well so that being just around the corner we had a really great have a really great relationship with matt frankie so we had this little bar community around us and we just did this sort of the tag of like pushing people around those venues and it worked phenomenally well at like the amount of people that would rock up to the bar and had just been recommended from one of those venues is astounding at the start. And then we obviously repaid the favor to everyone else. Sure. And that early days was really significant to our success for sure. 
Um, yeah. And then, you know, after year one, sort of 18 months in it, we really started hitting our stride and, and building up our, our customer base. And, and I guess, you know, six years in now, and the team that's there have kind of taken it on to a, a whole other level. Like I regularly tell people it's a much better place than it was when all the owners worked there. Um, uh, and now none of the owners work there and it's just pretty bloody good. Um, now, now it's professional, huh? It's very professional now. Um, but yeah, between, I guess, uh, Josh Baby, who, who runs the venue and writes the wine list, Nick Tessa, been there for mm. five years. Um, yeah. Zach, who's our head chef, Zachary First. It's like a really good caliber team and they've been able to create their own sort of path in that venue. We've given the freedom to kind of do what they want uh, within yeah. reason, obviously, but um, they do a, a phenomenal job. What, what came next then? Was it Capitano or did Worksmith come next? Worksmith came next. And the first iteration of Worksmith in the space I'm in now is, is in Collingwood on Smith Street. And we originally just wanted to open a, a co-working space for the hospitality industry. Yeah. So previous to that, when we first opened Liberty and with, with Banjo and our respective sort of life partners, if you will, um, yeah. we started something called Grow Assembly, which was a, a day of talks for the industry. And we, I think we ended up doing about six or seven over the years of, of Grow Assembly. Yeah. And at the time I was talking to Roscoe, who's my co-founder in Worksmith, about what it would mean to create a physical iteration of Grow because um, we loved what that cultivated on the on the you know the one day year that we did it and I was seeing the rise of co-working and sort of incubated incubator type spaces and we started really discussing that um, and Roscoe had just been on this epic one year trip around the world working in co-working specifically right. through a program and yeah it was kind of the meeting of those two things and this space sort of came up down the road and we're like let's give it a give it a crack basically so it was always meant to be a bit of a side project just have a cool space do some events and have a little community hub and then you know during that time of the first sort of start of worksmith we opened through madewell group we opened capitano off the back of liberty and again it was just sort of a timing piece you know we knew um dave kerr really well who had the Beaufort there before before capitano yeah. knew yeah. that um he was he was making moves to to get out of the space and going to the Beaufort, i don't know 30 40 plus times <laughs> um <laughs> i never being the place it was very dark and blacked out windows first when we did the first walkthrough it was during the day first time being there during the day and yeah. we pulled the blinds up and suddenly revealed this amazing terrazzo floor all the way through the place and we're like i've never known that was under my feet because you yeah, never right. look down right no well, <laughs> um, that would be yeah sketchy idea to do that exactly yeah. <laughs> and then we sort of started seeing the real bones of the place and uh, you know, given my, my background is Italian and being in Carlton as well, we felt like a bit of a revival of what, you know, Italian food could be. And right. Casey, spending a lot of time in New York and loved sort of New York Italian food, we kind of put our heads together around that, those sort of ideas and wanted to create a venue around that type of food, but more of a cocktail focus. And we brought Darren Leaney on to sort of lead that opening team. And he was with us for a number of years building that. I feel like we've found a really nice midpoint between being a great neighborhood Italian restaurant where we have families during the day. And it's a type of place where they're like, my in-laws are in town at the moment from the UK and they're a bit older and like totally cool to take them there. But then I can go there with my mates and have a yeah. cocktail in the bar on midweek and have a pizza. And it's, it, it has a really nice, like a really vast um, audience, which was what our, our plan was always yeah. to, to be. So we're really excited that we've been able to sort of land in that space. 
Yeah, well, I guess, I guess with that kind of setup, you've got occasion to go there more than once a week too, possibly mm-hmm. if you live in the area, right? Absolutely, how we do. How important is that to keeping a business going in the world we're in now? Oh, really important. I think, um, you know, Liberty less so now because of where the point is with, with the style of food and everything. But yeah. at the start of Liberty, it was always about, you know, how do you get people in a few days a week for their sort of glass of wine and a snack, which yeah. we certainly did at the start. And Capitano is the same thing. It's like, unfortunately, we've had to wind back hours Wednesday to Sunday because of staffing. We were seven days since opening. But, you know, we were getting people in uh, to go to the movies on a Monday night, have a quick pizza, 30 minutes in the route, have one drink, then coming yeah. back for a cocktail on a Friday night. And you're seeing like that real repeat customer. I want to get onto the Melbourne Cocktail Festival in just a second. And I think my yeah. next question will sort of lead on to that. But coming out of the lockdown, I imagine you're probably tired of even talking about it. <laughs> yeah, but a little bit. Like, uh, have, on my trips to Melbourne, I have kind of got the feeling that because the length of the lockdowns there, like it's kind of hit the Melbourne psyche in a way that you wouldn't have thought would happen in Melbourne because mm. Melbourne is just so – you go down there and you'd be jealous of everyone out and about on a Monday, Tuesday night going mm. out for dinner and drinks and everything. And it feels like it, that hasn't really sort of come back just yet. Yeah, I think it's, it's in different ways, though. Like, I think people's, as you say, psyches have changed. And, you know, certainly the city is much slower to come back. Everyone knows that being in the CBD, yeah. work is really slow to come back. That's really obvious. But I guess even around the neighborhoods where our venues are, it's just, it's really erratic. Like, right. you could kind of always pick pre COVID when your busy points would be, what nights of the week we're really going to kick off. And yeah. that sort of thing, which you can't, you, I feel like is just starting to come back now of like understanding what your week looks like. Sure. Whereas the last, say, since November, since the last lockdown of reopening till now, it's just been so erratic of what those days look like. Yeah. And you'll have a day where you'll be booked out, you know, on the books and be really gear up for a big night, expecting a bunch of walk-ins and that sort of thing. And then you get no walk-ins. It's like, oh, that's wow. strange. Yeah, and right. then you'll have a night where your, your books aren't full. And you're like, okay, it's going to be pretty subdued. And then you just get slammed with walk-ins. You're like, what is going on? <laughs> um, and really yeah. different ranging people, lots of new faces. It's, yeah, it's just all over the place, to be honest. And speaking to mm. other uh, restaurant owners, it's kind of <laughs> mirroring the same thing. Something that might help with a bit of this for bars around Melbourne is the Melbourne Cocktail Festival. Mm. Um, can you give us a brief overview of what that is for people who haven't heard of it yet? Yeah, absolutely. So Melbourne Cocktail Festival is actually born, this is our third year, and believe it or not, we've run it, this is the third year consecutive, consecutively <laughs> we've run it and somehow pulled it off. So the first year um, we ran the festival two weeks before COVID hit Australia and lockdown first first happened, so yeah. fluked it with timing. Yeah. Um, and then last year was in between lockdowns and this year obviously we're a little bit clearer. Yeah. Um, and I guess that was sort of, uh, born in-house at Worksmith with uh, Orlando Marzo, who was within the team at the time. Yeah. And he and I really looked at, and he just had come off winning world-class, Diageo world-class and spent a lot of time overseas at festivals, basically, um, yeah. and do, as, as, they, as they do. And we just started sort of lamenting the fact that why doesn't Melbourne have a cocktail festival? We have all these amazing bars here. Let's start sort of digging into that. And yeah, we started piecing together what, what that would look like. And to be honest, year one, we probably went a bit too hard on ourselves in terms of what we wanted to pull off. And it was really, it was honestly really difficult. And we did it first week of December was really when we hit the ground running with it. 
yeah. then the festival was end of March. Yeah. And we managed to still year one have 30 bars involved. We did Splash, which is the big tasting day, which was sold out. We did the symposium for a hundred people, which sold out, yeah. um, which is industry focused. Um, and then we had the bar safari with all of those 30 venues. And then on top of that, uh, like 15 or 16 events in bars. <laughs> so it was fucking big. So you gave um, yourself plenty he, of time to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, heaps, <laughs> Not really. Yeah. Well, it, gave, it was a bit of a proof point that uh, a lot can be done in a shorter period, short period of time, including the Christmas break, which That's um, it. kind of cut it up as well. So off the back of that, we learn a lot about the festival and, and what that looked like. And now, you know, coming into year three, looking at the structure, we feel really comfortable going into this year, albeit it's a lot of work, but how it's kind of split up is you have bars that join for the bar safari where they create a bespoke drink that's costed yep. at 50, oh, sorry, um, on the list at 15 bucks. It's a free registration for people to get a ticket to be able to get those drinks across over 40 bars this year, which is awesome. Uh, then we've got uh, Splash, which I mentioned before, which is the big tasting day. Uh, we're actually joining the food and wine festival event called New Crush. New Crush is a, a, a huge tasting of all Victorian drinks this year under the Drink Victorian program, mm. um, which is you know, run by the Food and, Food and Wine Festival, even previous to the festival. And we're basically taking out the spirits area uh, of that. And our Melbourne Cocktail Festival partners are, all have stands there for tastings. And then Homegrown, which is also under the Worksmith banner, uh, yeah. will have a, a large basically cocktail bar there, you know, very consumer-led um, event. And, mm. you know, it's only the first year that Food and Wine have done their larger event. So it'll be really interesting kind of bringing the two together to see how that that kind of runs. But we're expecting around 4,000 people for the day. So it's going to be a pretty big one. <laughs> you know, for us with the, the Food and Wine Festival, it was really exciting uh, to have them approach us and, and start working on how we could collaborate and, and bring sure. the Cocktail Festival alongside the Food and Wine Festival. Mm. And for us, well, how it was kind of, um, sort of pitch to us was that you know we're a bit of a, a fringe festival to them um, which yeah. is cool so you know our program goes on their program at the end of the day they're really restaurant focused yeah. um, and food focused and you um, guys are the weird kids with the spirits in the bars exactly yeah, yeah the, the, the late night the late night kids right how does it work for the brands what are they what do they get out of this yeah it varies depending on the brand but um, you know we've got the main uh, key partners being grain shaker as presenting partner uh, Starwood, Four Pillars, and then Homegrown's also a partner um, yep. at that higher level. And they're all, all those brands basically work with the, the 40 bars for the bar safari and give product um, right. to support those bars. So they all get partnered up with around 10 to 12 bars for each brand. Sure. And then uh, the drink that's created is off the back of those brands. And then also um, there's the opportunity to link with that brand to do an event. Yeah is how, how it works. And then on the splash tasting day, all of those brands have setups at those days. Yeah. I, I guess aside from those sort of key components, we've also got uh, the, the in venue events. So this year we'll have over 20 events across the week yeah, uh, right. in, in venues, which is really exciting. Um, and that's a really strong part of the festival where, you know, in the past years we've had sort of 95% of those events sell out and, and go really, really well. We, we also wanted to ensure that, the parties involved being the bar, the brand and the, the festival all got what it needed out of it. Yeah. And I, I say that um, by way of looking at, you know, 
what do what do brands ultimately want to get out of it? They want to connect with great bars. They want to connect with consumers, but yeah. they need to be able to do it in a way that they can actually afford. And given right. that we work with you know, <clears throat> small to medium-sized spirit brands generally, is that we can't put crazy numbers in front of them to, to be part of it. And we're yeah. really cognizant of that um, right. because we want this to be a sustainable festival for all parties involved. And yeah. three years in, we've had pretty much similar partners. There's been rarely many that have dropped off um, over those three years really shows me that we've, we've done sort of the right thing at a, um, at an entry point for those brands. Yeah. And then for the bars, so many joining on um, having over 40 venues really shows that on the venue side as well. Because you are involved in a few different types of projects, how do you go about yeah. working out what it is you want to get involved in? Do you have some sort of, you know, is it like Charter. a business side thing or yeah. I don't know? Yeah. Everything we've kind of just gone through, except for Homegrown, which we'll chat about, but yeah. was very much born out of having a sort of gut feel for what right. I wanted to do, which sounds a bit sure. silly. But, you know, Bar Liberty opened when I was 25. Yeah. So I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just knew that I, I was surrounded by people that knew what they're fucking doing, like Banjo with his incredible wine knowledge. Um, yeah. You know, Casey, his food is phenomenal. I think he's one of, you know, I'm slightly biased, but I think he's one of the most underrated chefs in Australia. He doesn't jump up and down. He doesn't do much PR. He hates doing a lot of that. I knew the people around me knew what they were doing. I didn't know if I actually knew what I was doing, but we could create something great. Um, and that was that sort of gut feel with, with Liberty. Yeah. And as we started growing out, um, I always knew I didn't want to open a bunch of venues all over Australia or like very different venues all over Melbourne. It was like, can we keep in a pretty tight knit community like the inner yeah. North? So Carlton, Fitzroy, Collingwood, and really create a really lovely thread through everything we do, hence why the name sort of made well group. It was like, we always knew that we wanted to keep a really high standard. And if that meant that our growth suffered, then that's okay. So we probably would have a couple more venues if we were sacrificing a little bit on the quality of the products we bought or the quality of the beverage that we buy is really high. Yeah, We wouldn't be able to live with ourselves if we did it any other way. And I guess that's that sort of gut feel, just like doing something that, you really love and you know is true to you. Yeah. Well, you um, mentioned before about Melbourne Cocktail Festival and building a sustainable thing going forward. Yeah. It sounds like that's the approach with the venues as well, is it? Absolutely. Like, yeah. it's certainly about, you know, we've, we've could have easily expanded Capitano early days. Uh, we are expanding Falco to more sites because that's yeah. more of a production focused project being, being a bakery and that makes a lot of sense. But even yeah. then, we'll be three years old at, Falco at the end of this year, uh, in December, and we've only still only got one store, and we could yeah. have easily opened a few more pretty quickly, especially during COVID. It just went pretty wild there. Again, it's create, creating that sustainable approach and and sort of slow growth. And I guess with with Worksmith, you know, we created this I guess cool place to work, and off the back of that, creating great events. Then with Melbourne Cocktail Festival, just by way of creating this community hub. The amount of awesome people that walk through these doors on a weekly basis still astounds yeah. me. And even early days, it was like, oh, Four Pillars work here, the core team that we were in Melbourne originally. And right. the type of people off the back of that that would walk in the door, even for meetings, it's like, oh, and then you just connect with people 
so quickly and you get an amazing oversight of what's actually happening in the industry. And, you know, we've got people in here from distributors to spirit producers to journalists and so on and so forth. We've got a small commercial kitchen here. So we've got up and coming chefs cooking out of here. Um, are you so, sitting yeah. in a podcast room right now? I am sitting good. in a podcast room. Yeah. yeah. It's the best <laughs> sound I've had for one of these yet. So oh, good. Good to hear. <laughs> when you said it, send the email, like, make sure you're in a quiet room. I was like, I got it. I got the room, just the space. <laughs> Not so, something yeah. everyone has. No. <laughs> no. So creating this space has just been, it's been a hell of a lot of work. I can't fathom to tell you how difficult it's been mm. to get to where we are with Worksmith. It's such a different. It's a startup at the end of the day, whereas you know the the, the food the uh, restaurants are you know, food business is small business, and it's very you know wearing very different hats when I'm in each one. Yeah, and, I, do you, do you intend to get uh, Worksmith going to other cities? Yeah, that was always the original plan to have more spaces, but yeah, COVID COVID actually taught us a lot. To be honest, like you know we def we nearly lost Worksmith multiple times through through lockdowns, yeah. um, and if basically forced our hand to really put everything up on a wall and work out what we actually wanted to do and what was coming back to that sustainability piece for all involved and what was going to be sustainable for us personally as Roscoe and I as the founders and also our um, our team that have yeah. you know, that the senior team has have certainly stuck stuck around is that we want to create bigger impact in industry outside of our four walls right. ultimately. So what that meant was creating a membership, which is called the industry membership, which is for venues. So we've got over 60 venues involved in that um, in Melbourne and signed on. Uh, that That's all based around two two main things. One is a buyer's group. So you get better pricing with, a, basically better pricing with ALM, PFD for food, um, uh, chef sat for equipment. We've just all brought right. seven rooms on as a reservations partner. Homegrown's tucked into that. We have a coffee company as well called Stella that's tucked into that. And it creates, you know, basically get cheaper things. And it's yeah. it's a zero, it's a zero sum um membership because it's about a hundred bucks a month per venue, yeah. depending on the size. And you make more than that back if you just sign on to one of our partners in terms of the savings you receive. Sure. And and you talk about creating sustainability, that was like a bit of a no-brainer approach creating that buyers group yeah and then uh they also get access to free monthly events that we do at worksmith right um and we see that as a growth part of worksmith where it's like you help venues outside the four walls our spaces are important yeah uh, because they create a great touch point for the industry and great events but we know that it's not going we don't want one in every city it doesn't sound like it's super i mean how are you making money out of this thing because <laughs> we don't Okay. <laughs> Honestly, we don't. So I'm very like I'll be very upfront, very open book. Is that you know, Worksmith is at best a break-even exercise. Yeah. To be honest, we did it because we thought it'd be a good idea for industry, yeah. and now have seen the amount we've brought. I guess personally, gotten out of it has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, from a professional point of view, and friendship point, like amazing friends I've, I've met over the years here, and the potential it creates. So we're really shifting our mindset out of co-working into this this idea of what an incubator is, right. given the people that work through here at an early stage and people we invest in or the people that we, um, I guess, bring into our team and then grow businesses out of out of the team. Yeah. And, you know, Homegrown is a really good example of this where we created a, a range of 
batch cocktails from the, the R&D to the spirits that went in there to the flavour house to the manufacturing, the design, literally all of those touch points, mm. PR, marketing, they were all within the Worksmith team, membership base or partners in Worksmith. So we were able to turn around that, you know, from I literally idea chatting to the team about it to first product in hand was like three months. Wow. Super quick. Wow. And it, uh, that's where we find our, our strength really is in the R&D and new concept stage because we've got these amazing people around us yeah. that just say yes to everything <laughs> yeah. um, or at least they're going to give you a meeting straight away and have a chat through it. Well, because you um, have that relationship already, right? Amazing relationship. And yeah. even... You know, our background is in really venues. So I had no idea what it meant to have a bonded warehouse or what excise uh, effect you had on your on your cocktails and all these these things that we've learned over the last 12 months. Yeah. We were able to get that information by meeting with one person that sat 10 metres away. And then we could <laughs> meet with the guys from ALM that work out of the space to talk yeah. about distribution costs. And then we talk like, and it's just like, all of these things at our fingertips. And it just started a bit of an aha moment for us mm. when we started um, iterating homegrown was like, we've got all these amazing people in one space yeah. that could make this come to life. And that's that's basically what's happened. So yeah. sorry, just so people know, homegrown, what, what is it? It's Yeah, so homegrown uh, is an Australian cocktail company. So uh, we do batch cocktails primarily for on-premise venues yeah. uh, to help them execute cocktails, Australian cocktails at scale. So... Uh, we've got, you know, over 35 venues, 40 venues in Melbourne pouring uh, homegrown yeah. now and we're starting to break into other states and starting to work with sort of larger pub groups as well. And the idea is that it's quality stuff that uh, – quality drinks that maybe these high-volume places can't really execute themselves all the time? Exactly. We find ourselves at a meeting point of enormous staffing issue, Yeah. just general staffing, let alone skilled staff, and then on top of that, cocktail culture going crazy. So venues that were primarily set up for pouring beer mm. are now making 100 cocktails on a Saturday. It's just this whole different dynamic. So, you know, we work with Stomping Ground here in Melbourne. It's a really good proof point for us. You know, they are a bloody brewery at the end of the day. And if you had it said to the boys, you know, five years ago, you're going to serve 150 cocktails on a Saturday yeah. lunch into dinner, they'd probably laugh at you. Whereas now they're doing that with our drinks. And that's where we get really excited because, you know, we know that the beer market's shifting a lot. The wine market's changing. Seltzers are bloody booming. <laughs> um, <laughs> Everything another, is seltzer that's now. Another, it's another conversation. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we find ourselves in this really sweet, sweet spot um, to create what we have with Homegrown. And I guess off the back of the craft spirit boom in Australia, having these amazing spirit producers at our doorstep, let alone even in our space working, meant that we were able to link all that up and create these these drinks for for venues. You know, it's not our intention to go after the high-end cocktail bar. It doesn't make any sense. They've got yeah. amazing skills to create amazing experiences in those places. Uh, it's also not our intention to take over whole cocktail lists at larger venues. It's about really working on um, high volume items on menus that are yeah. going to help people get out of the weeds. Uh, and you can pump out, honestly, we've got it on in keg, in 30 litre keg now, and in the 750 mil bottles. And even in bottle, keg's a bit faster. You can get, a, you know, three, four out a minute easily. And, you know, something that carries 
high GP, no prep, really fast execution. I wanted to ask you about the design. The Melbourne Cocktail Festival website is like, I love that website. When it first came out, it looked great. The design looks fantastic. And I went on there again uh, the other day and it just looks fantastic. Um, Thank you. How important is design to the kind of things that you do and bring it to the public? It is like we spend so much time and resource on design. I can't tell you. You know, thinking back, thinking back six years ago when we opened Liberty, I was so naive to the importance of uh, creative in general in, in venues or in product or whatever else. So whether that's graphic design or photography or even architecture, I'd even put that in that world. And as I've learned, you know, it's just only been six years, it's not a long time, but I've learned so much in that time in all those aspects of the importance of these these pieces. And even from an architecture point of view, looking at the flow of a venue is so important. You know, that's something that I can I can feel when I'm in a venue, but don't know really know how to design. I can give input obviously, but sure architects have do such an amazing job of pulling those ideas together and, and be able to create a venue that actually works alongside, yeah. you know, the owners. Off the back of that and learning more about design more generally from a, a graphic point of view is that creating something that feels familiar but is totally different is just like, for me, the sweet spot in design. And we work with some incredible people uh, here in Melbourne to do that. You know, yeah. notably Lauren Bonkowski, uh, who co-owns Marionette and her, her design agency is called Small Fortunes. She was one of our members since day one and mm. a very good example of she was the original um, person that designed the, the Melbourne Cocktail Festival website and, and the branding. She also did all of Homegrown. Yeah. You can certainly see a line, draw a line between those designs. And obviously her work with Marionette and this oh, goes Starwood, Pirate Life, original branding, like goes on and on. And I feel like she, she her designs are just incredible. And she's someone that, especially when you get to know each other really well from a design perspective is that, you know, we can do a pretty half-baked job of briefing someone. Um, <laughs> but, be, be, but because she knows us so well, knows our brands, knows our ethos, like the, I feel like that's the best briefing you could ever give. She knows um, how to translate whatever it is you're saying. Exactly. So. <laughs> um, and she, what she comes up with just always blows my mind. It's just always like I didn't even expect what, what the outcome is. And we use another, another designer in Melbourne called Local Practice. Uh, and Rob, who who run, runs that agency, is also phenomenal, can take a slither of an idea and just yeah. run with it and come back with like 20 things to look at and go, fuck, I didn't, you know, it gives you so many options. I think it's just so important that we we place a really high level importance on design across those sort of those factors. And even, you know, I'll put photography in that as well. Videography is that everything, we consume everything with our eyes first ultimately yeah. and if, yeah, if you're it's not, food or drink even you know exactly and if, you, yeah. if it's not appealing to your eyes then how excited are you going to be to put it in your mouth or buy a ticket to then buy a cocktail or whatever and sure. we want to be on the forefront of that you know tim varney is our creative director uh for worksmith so everything through worksmith uh melbourne cocktail festival homegrown or stella is touched by him and he really right. guides that and the the level of qualities uh you know it's it's certainly uh very obvious do do you think that has changed over the last say 10 years with things like instagram and all that stuff the the importance of design just with venues with drinks yeah yeah 100 yeah, like it's 
what I said before about you consume things with your eyes so yeah. much so that, you know, Instagram really, that's what it's there for at the end of the day, um, for better or for worse, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you know, I think early days of Instagram taking off, a lot of people in the industry were really dismissive of it, mm. of like, oh, I'm not going to show my food because it needs to be, like, that's the sort of conversations I'm having with chefs of like, I don't want to show my food because I want people to be excited or like surprised when they come in. And I totally get that. There's a, yeah. there's a certain amount of like, Know, smoke and mirrors for, for venues and you don't want to completely pull the curtain up um, yeah. on on what you do and I think there's a really fine balance between between that and you know you can't get across how great your service is in Instagram really so it's like there's a lot of things yeah. that are still reserved for when guests are in the venue you know looking at a picture you're never going to get the feeling of looking at a, you know a great dish that Zach's put up at Liberty yeah. might look delicious and interesting but it's not going to give you the feeling that you get when you walk into that bar and the interesting thing is these images are more uh more ubiquitous and everywhere but p- people seem to want the experience more than ever at the same time so uh, yeah. yeah it's super interesting like we there's still the thing of like people looking in or being in venue and not wanting to ask the waiter a question about a dish but then looking at our instagram to order nearly and be like, I want that thing. And it's like, well, if you just, that was three months ago that was posted. Tomatoes aren't in season anymore. Yeah. We don't have that. And it's just like that connection piece that's, I think people um, can lack that really dive so deep into Instagram, the Instagram world, that there's that connection piece missing. And that's what I worry about. Like ordering at table is great for some venues and, was really important during COVID and will yeah. continue to be because it's a tech solution, helps a little bit with staffing, drives yeah. up revenue, et cetera. I get it. I, I certainly believe it's the fu- it's the now, it's the future. Mm. But I'm really worried about the connection piece in hospitality with yeah. these tech, tech overlays in venues. Well, like just even looking at the menus on your phone, you're just taking out of the conversation you're having with the person opposite you. You're taking totally. out of the you're taking out of the environment that this supposedly this owner's taken time to build and cultivate and design. And then you're in your screen. That's like, you know, how, how unique can that be? The screen yeah, experience. totally. And that's, I think it has its merits for certain points of the business. And I totally understand yeah. how it all works financially, but it's like how, and I, I get there's no getting rid of them now, but how can we do it in a way that's not going to lo- ultimately lose the connection that you're ultimately there to get. Mm. That's yeah. what in that's how I uh, how I think about it. Like you go to restaurants because we're human and we seek connection with the people you're with mm. and the people around you and the the people that work there ultimately. Yeah. So if we're suddenly putting something between those people that cuts that connection off, then how does that person feel when they leave? Do they feel like they were kind of on Instagram and ordering and then food kind of turned up yeah. and then you kind of have your conversation, but did you get, get the connection and feeling that uh, as venue owners, we want everyone to have when they're in there. Yeah. Or, or they just get in the feeling that they took a photo of the food and they got the likes and that's what they're after. <laughs> uh, exactly. Like self gratification is just like Instagram <laughs> is built for that. We know, we yeah. know that. And you know, that's a whole nother world. It's a whole nother thing to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, last question for you is what, 
in the, in what you do in your day to day, what do you think the personal attributes that you have? Uh, that you bring to bear on what you do? What kind of skills? Do you have like a creative mind, analytical mind? Do you have a bit of everything? I think, uh, I reckon my biggest skill is knowing that I don't really have a skill. (laughs) (laughs) As as self-deprecating as that sounds, um, as I touched on before, like I I think, you know, I'm I'm good at putting great people around me um, and knowing my place in in decision-making, in concept, in design, in, and I, I'm definitely on more the creative side than the analytical. Um, yeah. You know, Roscoe, who's my co-founder at Worksmith, is phenomenal on the analytical side. And Rob, our general manager here also, he's ex-financial management and amazing on the detail side. Sure. Um, I suck at detail. I really suck at it. Um, yeah, big picture. I've, yeah, I'm definitely big picture. I love the concept stage of things i love the creative side whether it's you know graphic design through to you know r&d for cocktails given my beverage background um that's certainly the side i sit on and i think from a a tribute personally it's having a a really open mind to everyone's experiences and ideas is i think the most important thing to me i think I, i sometimes it creeps into my mind maybe i'm just a little bit too open sometimes or maybe i don't steer everyone enough and right. you know i don't i certainly don't rule with an iron fist it's not me at all um and you know sometimes things happen you do need to push a little bit harder but i hope that i give everyone i think i do i give it up leeway for people to be creative in their own mindsets rather like we don't want to be especially worksmith our thinking is like we don't want people to be task orientated you can create a list for yourself of shit to do but ultimately that's not exciting for anyone um, we want people to think in strategically. We want people to be really creative. And if you don't give them people the space to do that, kind of box them in to be kind of paper pushers and they're only sort of doing what you tell them to do rather than giving them the space for them to kind of create something great. Well, Michael, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me for drinks at work today. It's 4th of April it is that Melbourne Cocktail Festival kicks off. Yeah, 4th to the 10th. And people can get uh, the tickets at melbournecocktailfestival.io. Very good. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, man, for talking to me. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you to Michael for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us a lot in getting this podcast out to a wider audience if you could leave a review on your podcast platform of choice or share it with a friend who you know might like it too. Until next week, this is Drinks at Work by Boothby. Thanks for listening.